Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Our compatriot, Noel, is off on adventures. In the meantime, they call me Ben. We are joined with our super producer, Paul, Mission Control Deccan. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Today, we are exploring one of the strangest, most infamous series of events in early American history, genuine, real-life witch trials. And nowadays, most people only know of these events through wildly fanciful works of fiction, film, books, etc. So how do we separate the fact from the fancy here? How do we establish what really led to these trials, what genuinely happened to the victims, and how these events impacted our culture and history? History from that point on to the modern day. This is admittedly a tall order, Matt, and luckily, very luckily, we are not tackling it alone. We are joined by the creator, producer, and host of the hit podcast Lore, which has also been adapted into a book series and a television series, and as well as the creator of the brand new podcast, Unobscured, ladies and gentlemen, Aaron Menke. Hey, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Hey, it is our pleasure to have you on the show, Aaron. And just a bit of full disclosure here, I work with Aaron in creating the show Unobscured, Mm -hmm. just uh, lest you think we're pulling a fast one on you. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We work together on this, but uh, the bulk of the work is most certainly uh, Aaron's. Um, But we we had a – it was just a fascinating deep dive into – the the Salem witch trials, right? And and Aaron, uh, Ben hit on it immediately at the top of this show, but it's something I want to jump right into. Just this fact that many of us are introduced to the Salem witch trials, usually in, at least in my case, an academic setting. You take a, an early history class about American history, then, you know, you kind of have an understanding, but then all of that gets shaped by all of this pop culture and all of these other references. So how, how has our understanding of the, the real witch trials been modified by this pop culture? 
Well, I mean, I think you're exactly right. You know, there's a lot of different factors that come into play to, I, I guess, hide the true story and, and, and not always intentionally. It's not like there's a, dare I say it on this show, but it's not like there's a conspiracy to, <laughs> to hide the, the, you know, the true uh, acts and deeds and all that went on. You know, it, the Salem Witch Trials was a, a, you know, roughly 13 or 14 month period of time that had a lot going on. And so you think about maybe bumping into it in a high school class on early American history. And, you know, it's one of, you know, a couple of dozen things that you're going to talk about that semester. And so by necessity, you sort of have to brush over it and and just mention a few things like it happened 1692 um 19 people were hanged one was crushed to death by stones and five died in jail and th- and that's that's the story you hear you know and maybe somebody throws in well you know they believe that there were witches and the church wanted those dead and you know we we just we sort of uh, sum it all up into a couple of sentences and especially in this day and age of you know small character count tweets and social media posts, it's easy to try to summarize things up like that. Uh, the other factor coming into this, like you mentioned before, is pop culture, right? Like films and, and screens uh, like like The Crucible and TV shows and, and even, you know, bad one-hour documentaries. Because yeah. I don't think you can cover something like Salem Witch Trials in one hour. So, you know, th- those things all just sort of work to, to force us toward an easy soundbite answer and when you do that, you lose all of the nuance. You know, something that a lot of people may not know, and it's something that I learned uh, fairly recently, you actually physically lived within a very close proximity to where the Salem Witch Trials occurred. Um, what, yeah, yeah. Can you um, tell that, us about for, that? Well, you know, so um, you hear about the Salem Witch Trials, and if you were to find the location where a lot of the, the victims came from on a map today— it would come with the name Danvers as the town and not Salem, which is sort of confusing, right? You, you kind of expect it to be Salem, Salem, which is a little bit more toward the east. But back in the late 1600s, Salem was like this territory, you know, and you had the city, but then you had the breadbasket around it of all these different communities, places that exist now today as their own independent communities like Wenham and Danvers and Beverly and Andover and Topsfield and all these places slowly were chiseled off of the Salem landmass and became their own things. So what is now today, Danvers used to be Salem Village, and Salem proper today used to be Salem Town, because that was sort of the the built-up, um, wealthier town aspect of it all. Ah, so this, this is going to be new information for quite a few of our listeners here, <laughs> you know, it, and it's important, I, I would argue, for us to, to carve these distinctions out and clarify them because the, the last time that we were in Boston, uh, we learned firsthand from uh, some residents about Salem's, the, the current Salem's uh, pretty successful tourism industry based off of this tragedy. Is that a real thing? Is it still in full swing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, and we talk about Danvers being Old Salem Village and, and Salem being Old Salem Town. And that dichotomy between the two places, there's, there's a reason why their name has changed. And that's partly to distance themselves from what happened. Most of the Salem base, because there, there, okay, so there were a lot of victims that came from other communities, Andover, Topsfield, all over the place, Gloucester. Um, but a lot of the Salem victims came from the Salem village area. So what is now Danvers and a lot of the, the, uh, the legal aspects, especially the court of Oyer and Terminer, which was sort of the, the higher level, um, jury plus judges system. Um, and then moving on to the superior court, those things all happened in Salem town. So you had victims coming from one area and that's now Danvers, um, and that's wildly generalized. I'm I'm just roughly saying it. Mm. And then in Salem, all the all the basically all the bad guys, right? All the people that sat in the jury or on the court and judged people and and sentenced them to death. So you have these two towns. You know, 325 years ago, were sort of sitting next to each other, and they've grown they've grown up, but they've also grown apart culturally. And so Danvers changed its name, and it sort of distances itself from the idea that the witch trials happened there. Like, you can find things. Uh, Rebecca Nurse is one of the victims. Um, She was a 75, 76-year-old woman who, um, her crime was that she was too generous with one of her neighbors. Uh, Back then, Puritans were incredibly 
um, prejudiced against any other faiths. And so even Quakers, which we never think of Quakers as being like antagonists or, or bad people, but in the Puritan mind, they just, they weren't Puritans. And so Quakers were bad. And she took in a Quaker orphan and that sort of sealed her fate among, among other things. She had some rumors spread about her and whatnot. Anyway, her house is still there. It's, it's a homestead. It's a museum you can tour. 325 years later, it's still there. And um, it's set up more sensitively and as a, as a museum, um, as opposed to the Salem Witch Museum, which is, you know, red lights and dark shadows and witches and <laughs> cauldrons and things like that. And, and so there's this, there's this dichotomy of Salem sort of dodging the issue and uh, Danvers dodging the issue and Salem Town sort of rolling right into it. I mean, there's a, there's a statue of Samantha from the, the old TV show Bewitched in the middle of town because she was a witch and let's put a statue up for her, you know? Oh, wow. Makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, you've hit on something very important here and that's that dichotomy between these two towns, but there's also a dichotomy between what our understanding of what a witch is now that is again, have it's been morphed and changed over all of these years. Um, What, what was a witch in 1692 New England? Oh, it's such a tricky question. A witch was, I mean, you know, in the in the religious sense to the Puritans, it was it was somebody who was working for the devil to tear down the Puritan mission of this utopian society in the New World. Um, the reason why the Puritans came over is because um, the the Anglican Church, and which was kind of a Protestant branch off of the Catholic Church, the Church of England, that just wasn't pure enough. It hadn't it hadn't tossed off enough of the Catholic trappings to be acceptable, and the Puritans wanted it to be more pure, thus the name. <laughs> and um, a, a, among all of the colonies that were set up in the 1600s, that were all sort of like either endeavors of the crown or business ventures. This was a business venture that was run purely by the Puritans. And they, all the people that ran it essentially came over with it and set up shop here. So it wasn't being run from afar by the owners. It was being run here. They had a charter from the king and you had to get that. Um, but they were this, they were this isolated religious community and anybody who threatened their mission was potentially a witch. They were an agent of the devil. And there were all these cool little trappings that came with it that we still have pieces of in our culture today. You know, you think about um, how many times you've seen a witch on TV with a black cat, right? Like it's just the, it's the partner in crime they always have. And mm-hmm. that comes back to the idea of a familiar, you know, an animal that that is a evil spirit in the form of, a, of an animal um, that follows the witch around. And that's just a, almost a European an American constant that you have familiars. There are things like, well, we can tell you're a witch if you have witch marks on you, which is supposed to be like this little devil's teat, this, this place where the, the demons will, will suckle from the witch. Um, and they look like freckles or moles or skin tags. And of course they found them on people because everybody has those things. Mm. So, you know, it was this really tricky thing where, yeah, they were enemies of, of the Puritan faith, but after that, it was just kind of hard to nail it down, which created problems for them, you know? Yeah, we can. I, I can totally understand this because in the case of, um, I believe it was Sarah Osborne, right? One of the first people accused of witchcraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in her case, I, I think one of the primary uh, causes for persecution or prosecution was that she was suspected of living with her second husband before they got officially married. And There was a little bit of that going yeah. on, yeah. She had a child with him. She had a child from a previous marriage. She had a child with, I think, uh, before she married her second husband. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm getting my people right or not, but I think she might have been the one who, like, one of the kids lived at home and one of them lived in sort of a boarding house situation. But yeah, Sarah Osborne wasn't, um, she, I mean, she was also just an outsider. She wasn't mm. respected. She, she didn't toe the line. She didn't follow the rules. And people then, as people now, lash out against the outsider. They become a scapegoat for our fears and our anxieties. And there's something here to be said. It's, it's, I'm trying to articulate this correctly, Aaron, but the thin somewhat non-existent line between uh, religion and the law within the land. Uh, And it's almost the same thing in most respects. 
Um, yeah. I'm trying to wrap my head around exactly what I'm trying to ask you here, but I feel like that is one of the major contributing factors, or at least that's one of the things you think about uh, nowadays when you're imagining this time period. How how did that come into play with setting up these trials? Like, were the Oyer and Terminer trials specifically a um, a law of the land kind of thing, or was it a religious law thing? Well, um, I mean, that's a 45-minute podcast in, <laughs> in that answer right there. But, like, let's just, let's let's say it this way. So, they had a charter, which was sort of a, a permission certificate from the king to go create this colony. Um, the charter usually had some laws and regulations that were in there. And for the most part, you were supposed to adhere to English law, kind of defer to that. But because of the way the Puritan colony of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts was set up, it was just a little different. They had a little bit more freedom and latitude, and they were able to build their faith into the laws a lot more tightly. So when the Salem Witch Trials happen, it happens in this, uh, you know, Dr. Emerson Baker is one of our historians, and he calls his book The Storm of Witchcraft because it's this perfect storm of ingredients. Among all these other things, the fear of the wars with the Native Americans to the north, the the French who are allied with them, um, uh, a harsh winter, um, all these different factors coming together. You also had the fact that the the king, kind of in a power play, takes the charter away from the people um, shortly before the witch trials happen. So they're essentially governmentless. They don't have any, they don't have anything. And there's this promise of a new charter but they haven't got it yet. So they're, they're literally, uh, they're, they're, a, they're a society that has lost all their laws. And so they're leaning on the people like, like John Hawthorne, who, you know, his, like him and his father both worked with the charter and they, they knew the law. They're kind of leaning on these people to help them. But, I mean, you know, their faith is permeating these things. They, you know, they have this fear of witches. And I mean, even when they sit down with a new charter and start to list out like, all right, we have to put together a list of capital crimes, which they started doing in 1692, you know, witchcraft falls on the capital crime list. You're not going to find that on the books today because we have a very secular government. Hmm. Um, and but back then, there that that border between church and state was a lot more fuzzy. And uh, and so things like, you know, being a witch became this capital offense, and uh, it was executed executable by death, with some exceptions. The deeper into the trials you get, and it just gets more complex. Things like, you know. At some point, if you used witchcraft, but you didn't kill anybody, you could be punished, but you won't be executed and whatnot. But, but yeah, the faith really did, it, it, it permeated everything, really. And it, it makes sense what you're saying, given the context of the time when people are, I think you hit a really powerful point here when you say that the people found themselves governless, right, in, in a hostile yeah. environment in terms of the, the uh, ecosystem they were surrounded by. Uh, and if we're, if we're being honest, this is in many ways a group of what we would call religious extremists today. So people in a vacuum of organizational structure would tend to fall back on the number one organizational structure uh, that they consider their their core set of values, which personally, and I don't want to inject too much of my opinion in here, is terrifying because it, it kind of – it sounds as if this is something that occurs, uh, you know, in the distant past – but it's very important for us to remember that people are still people. We're still the same cognitive machines. And yeah. uh, these sorts of things are not as implausible in the modern day as they were. You know, they're not any less plausible, I should say, than they were in the 1600s. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the benefits of, of I mean, think about how our government, you know, the original American government was put together. You had representatives who were you know, chosen by the people to go to a continental Congress and they lay down laws and they work together. I mean, they worked with a lot of existing laws around Europe that they knew of. You know, the Magna Carta was an influence and things like that. But they 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 were they were a voice for the people as a collective putting things together. And that made it a lot a lot more infallible. You had people saying, well, that idea sounds good, but here are three problems with it. And that's this is how it could go wrong. And so they could adjust things. When you move to a society that's t- smaller, I mean, Salem Village had about 500 people in it, five, 550. Um, Salem Town, I think, had maybe 2,000 people in it. You know, that's a smaller group of people with a smaller pool of leaders. 
making up laws and trying to find their way, they're going to make a lot more mistakes and they're going to bring a lot more personal bias into things, which is why, I mean, this is why dictatorships go wrong and why emperors and kings have so many problems unless they have some sort of a, a parliamentary system around them to keep them in check because one person making choices is going to make a lot more worse choices than than a group of people collectively thinking things through with common sense. So this is, you know, this is partly what plays out in Salem. You have a bunch of people who... They're just kind of leaning on what they know and uh, and their personal opinions and their fears and their hopes and all this stuff, and we get a mess. And we'll pause right there for a quick word from our sponsor. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long for just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. And we're back. This is a little bit biographical, uh, but what were your primary inspirations or motivations that that set you on the path to explore and clarify this story? You know, um, I mean, I, I've I've made the podcast called Lore for about three and a half years now, and Lore is essentially a dark historical podcast. You know, I, I look for stories from history that have a more unusual or um, or dark is just the best word for it, a dark bent that, you know, that's the kind of stuff you're not going to learn about in history class. You're not going to learn about the drummer of Tedworth, um, you know, a house haunted by a ghost that keeps making a drumming sound and 
possibly a haunted drum and all these things. You're not going to learn about these things in history class. And, 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 and that's why I, I do lore because I want people to hear these great tales of things that happened and people claim that they were true and I want to explore them. Most of the time, I'm fine finding topics that I can do in a half an hour. That's typically the format of the show. You know, about 30 minutes long, throw in some ads and some credits and we're good. And uh, that leaves out a few topics, you know. And so from the very beginning, I thought, well, the Salem Witch Trials fits, you know, that it has all of these really great details. There's good context lessons in here, like learning about how witchcraft worked in Europe and England all these great things, but you couldn't cover it in an hour or a half an hour even. So I I just kind of set it aside. And so for a couple of years, I had a folder on my hard drive that said, it said, Lore, the Salem Project. And I had this vision of maybe someday when I had free time, because uh-huh, <laughs> I just got busier and busier as time went by. Um, maybe someday I'll be able to do like a little mini series on, on uh, Salem. And I didn't, I didn't know if I'd give it its own RSS feed or if I would, you know, maybe make it a paid only, like you could go, you know, download the thing like an audiobook sort of thing because I didn't know what the material would would turn into. Um, so it wasn't until you know about a year ago that I started working with uh, some of your folks over there at How Stuff Works and realized that if we were going to build a a network of shows, one of those could very well be a, a long form documentary series that just takes time. You know, gives these really big stories the breathing room that they need and and let it let it go deep. And so that's, that was the perfect home for the Salem topic. And not only that, but living in it and around it here in my area, it, it just made sense. And, and it's, you, you can't pass up a topic like this. So jumping back, let's jump back to 1692 Salem. It's winter time. It's a uh, freaking cold out there. And there's no central heating. There's no electricity. Um, the only way to keep you and your family warm enough to not die is to have firewood. And yeah. one thing that I didn't understand uh, going into this project was just how vital firewood was as a commodity, as almost a currency in a way. Uh, can you talk to us about the importance of firewood back then? Yeah, I mean, picture that post-apocalyptic movie that you love where – you know, there is no more U.S. currency, the global market's gone, and you need to go buy food from some trader, and it's either a precious metal or it's a bullet, you know, things like that, that you're, you're trying to find ways, like what, what are valuable commodities to trade for something? And firewood was certainly, um, I wouldn't say it was worth its weight in gold, but it was highly important. So to illustrate this, you know, the, the minister in Salem Village, where a lot of the victims came from, um, was this guy named Samuel Paris who came from, um, I mean, he, his family was English, obviously. His, uh, his uncle had uh, purchased or somehow acquired a plantation on the island of Barbados. And, uh, and then he was really bad at running the business. And so he brought his brother in, which was Samuel's dad. And his brother saved it. His, you know, his uncle eventually dies. And so Sam's dad inherits the place and runs it well, but uh, some natural disasters happen. There's like this massive hurricane and there's a, a drought and I think some sickness and smallpox maybe. And eventually um, Samuel Paris has found himself running the place and he doesn't want to anymore. He, he realizes it's, it's going to kill him. So he sells it and heads north. Um, he wanted to go to Harvard. And while his dad was still alive, he was attending Harvard, which is really, really old school from the 1600s outside of Boston. And uh, so when he finally sold the place off for good, he moved back to Boston, maybe thinking that he would finish school because he had stopped a few classes shy, um, maybe just looking for work. He used some of his money to set up a business there. Finally, he ends up um, not doing well at business and taking the position in Salem Village as their new minister. Um, The negotiation process for his contract took him over a year because he was this super litigious like, we have to get all the T's crossed and the I's dotted and I want to be taken care of. I think he had some high aspirations. But one of the things that he was super uh, picky about was firewood, that he needed his firewood delivered. And even after becoming the minister there, it was a problem constantly with, with you know, farmers in the area. It was like their turn that week to bring him a load of firewood and they just, they wouldn't do it. Um, he was hard to like, he was hard to get along with. And some of them just sort of held it back as, as a leverage over him. 
and there's these stories of him writing in his study upstairs in the middle of winter, dipping his quill in the inkwell to, to scratch on the book and the ink in the inkwell being frozen because it's so cold in the house. And uh, that firewood just becomes this thorn in his side for the entire time. Just oh, chop wow. your own firewood, man. I know. Well, I mean, <laughs> he, you know, as a minister, you're given the parsonage to live in. There's no mm-hmm. land with it. Um, all the land abutting you is fenced off, and it belongs to somebody else. And yeah. they're going to cut down their trees and use it. And and he was sort of stuck. But yeah, I mean, I'd I'd get a hatchet and go out in the middle of the night and just you know start clearing branches off of trees and bringing them home. <laughs> <Right>. Which <laughs> <laughs> so this is uh, one thing that I think is going to be fascinating to a lot of our fellow listeners when they or as they explore unobscured is the process uh, through which you f- discover these stories. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the the primary written records that you found or how complete or incomplete they were and and how how you took this this vast amount of um uncollected resources like how how did you arrange them and what was what was the process like was it was it all uphill were there surprising finds were there times where you know it was frustrating because Again, the great game of telephone that is human history got in the way. I think we're we're all very curious to learn about that. Well, one thing to keep in mind is that um, toward the end of the witch trial period of 1692, it basically starts in January of 1692 and runs through till about May of 1693. And toward the end of that, the governor of Massachusetts is this guy named uh, Sir William Phipps. And he... He realizes that the public perception of what's going on in the trials is bad. Um, in fact, at some point, the the judges involved in the trial hire um, a minister from a prominent minister family. Their last name was Mather. Uh, Increase was the father. Uh, Cotton was the son. Cotton Mather. Um, that's right, Cotton. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, Cotton was hired to basically write a PR piece. It was a book in defense of the Salem witch trials. And right about that time. Governor Phipps decides it will be very bad if anybody else prints things about this. We want this to be the only thing out there. And so the governor outlaws the press. They can't talk or write about uh, the Salem Witch Trials anymore. So you have that, which limits the amount of stuff that's written about it in 1692, 1693. Then you have people with, with you know, let, let's, let's just pick a, a judge out of, you know, like Nathaniel Saltonstall or, or somebody like that, like, or Samuel Sewell. Um, there, there are family documents that would have existed. Personal journals was a, a, a big thing for a lot of these judges. They wrote in their journals every night. And a lot of them just go missing. Letters between judges who served on the trial and family members t- kind of take a break for a, about a year there where they just, they vanish. It's not like they stopped writing. Somebody's gone in and they've taken these sheaves of paper out and they've destroyed them in some way. Samuel Paris himself, the, the minister, for, you know, 13, 14, 15 months, kept notebooks of what was going on. And one page was pulled out of a notebook at some point and taken as evidence for something. We don't know how or why, but all the rest of the notebooks have vanished. It's not that they've been misplaced or, you know, that the family just won't give them up. They just don't exist anymore. There's this almost global cover-up of the documentation of what happened. Once the government gets on its feet in late 1692 and the Oyer and Terminer is shut down and it becomes the Superior Court, essentially the, the state Supreme Court. Um, the documents don't go away anymore. Those become really official and we still have all those. But all the court documents from the Oyer and Terminer, the, the big trial all through the summer of 1692, it's just gone. So there's not a lot to look at. There is stuff. Um, I'm going to plug the website just because it's got great resources on it. But if you go to historyunobscured.com, there's a resources page. And I I can't remember if it's on there, if I need to put it on there, but there's a link to, uh, is it the University of Virginia that has like a digital scanned in library of every document relating to it. So things like uh, the warrant that was issued for um, uh, Reverend George Burroughs, like you can see the warrant right there, written out in handwriting, long form, it's got dates on it and everything. It's it's beautiful. Mm. It's tragic. Um, so there, there are things that we have and we still find things, you know, every year somebody's bumping into a new document, some family 
opens up a book in their library and finds a a warrant or a, a letter that was tucked away. Like it happens, but a lot of it's just sort of disappeared. You know, I think this right here is the stuff they don't want you to know about the Salem witch trials. Can you can you imagine now in this in modern history if someone attempted to do this? Just if it was a a year long process somewhere, and someone said, "Oh nope, we're going to strike this uh, whole thing from the record." Uh, nope, everybody put away your social media. Nope, we're going to delete everybody's Facebook. Uh, it's over. This didn't happen. Yeah. Here's the official account in this one tome or this one blog. All right, uh, carry on. That's insane to me that yeah. that could even happen. But you know, we did. Where did we go? We went to the Danvers Archival. Uh, the Danvers Archival Center? Yeah, the, so the, the Peabody Essex Library, a Peabody Institute Library that's in Danvers. Peabody's another town, but the Danvers Library is actually called the Peabody Institute Library. It's confusing, but they have, a, they have an archive in the basement. They have an archivist. One of our historians, uh, Richard Trask, is a you know, decades-long experienced uh, historian. He's also descended from a, a number of the victims from the witch trials, and he lives within blocks of where it all happened. Um, in a period home. He's he's a cool guy. I like Richard a lot. And he sits as the archivist down there in the the, the bowels of the library, and he manages all these amazing things. Um, the church changed locations. They moved across the street a few years after it was all over. Uh, they've got a new minister, Reverend Green, um, maybe in the 1698, 99 range or so. He moved the building across the street. Um and then eventually that was, you know, torn down and they built a bigger building because it's a church and they, they grow and populations grow. Um, in the 1970s, I think, there was a fire at the church and Richard Trask went with the the fire department and was able to get in and save some things. He saved the um, the original communion ware, you know, like the chalice, the bowl, those things are made out of pewter, but they were in a box right by the door and on purpose, like he told them to keep them by the door in case there was a fire. Uh, and then two books were saved. One is, think of them both as like ship's logs. You know, you think like Picard talking to the computer in his in his ready room, um, you know, uh, ship's mm. log, date, whatever. So there was there was a log for the church itself, and a lot of people wrote in it. Whoever were officers and important people would write in there like, you know, we excommunicated, you know, Martha Corey on this date, um, or we brought in this member this date. It's sort of a happenings of the church. That book from 1692 was saved. Um, as well as the minister's book, which is sort of a ship's log for the minister. Um, and, the, and that has Samuel Paris's writing in it, detailing things that are going on, writing about the events. And when he left and Reverend Green came in, that book was handed off to Reverend Green. And then he takes over writing in it. And it's almost like a diary for whoever holds the position of minister. So cool. Yeah. We, we and are, and get, yeah. to get to see them and hold them and, and look at them, it's just, they're amazing. And we'll continue to explore this in just a moment after a quick word from our sponsor. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, 
where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. And we're back. One of the crucial things about reading these primary sources, finding these uh, contemporary or near contemporary accounts, is that because they are so much closer to the time in which these actual events occurred, they do not suffer from some of the, frankly, widespread misconceptions that we have in the modern day, not just, look, not just in the world of Hollywood, but in the cultural zeitgeist, even in academic settings. So what, uh, if you could tell us, Aaron, what were some of the misconceptions that you found in the course of your work on Unobscured? Well, you know, I have this belief that people like to sum things up into a, a sentence. You know, we like to say, oh, I understand that. You know, it was this. It was, it was simple, right? Like, to be able to declare something as simple means that we've grasped it and we're in control of it. And you can't do that with the Salem Witch Trials. It wasn't simple. It was highly complex. So one of the most common questions that I get, um, whether it's social media or in person, regarding the Salem Witch Trials is, well, why did it happen? You know, and I, I think that that's our inclination. It's a noble question. It's good, but it's people saying, "Give me that one sentence that explains why." What's the <laughs> one answer? And there isn't there isn't a one answer. Again, I, I I hearken back to what Dr. Baker wrote for his book, The Storm of Witchcraft. It's got this great introduction by somebody else that talks about how it's the perfect storm of all these elements that come together. Before I go on to what maybe they were misconceptions, you know, the, the big one that I always get is, oh, it was just rotten bread, right? It was, the, it was that ergot poisoning <laughs> stuff, right? Um, I, genu- I genuinely thought that when we started yeah, making the show. <laughs> Hopefully you have learned. Yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, ergot is this fungus that grows on grains. Um, you know, we hear about it as rye um, and people make bread out of rye, among other things. It makes a good bourbon out of rye. Mm-hmm. But um, the, this, this fungus can cause hallucinations. And the idea was put forward in the mid-70s that, hey, what if these people were having hallucinations and and that explains why they were behaving so bad. They can have convulsions too. And, you know, some of the the afflicted girls, as we call them, the the people who were showing symptoms of being attacked by the witches, um, they had convulsions and fits. They would fall on the floor and thrash around. So, you know, hey, sounds like Ergot explains this. And the very next month after that was published in a journal, the same journal published a, um, a debunking of it. You know, two more scientists came on board and said, no, look, it, it can't be ergot poisoning. And here's why. Ergot poisoning reacts to you one of two ways, depending on how you eat. If you are um, deficient in vitamin A, 
you will probably have hallucinations and convulsions. They call it convulsing or gut poisoning, something like that. Um, but, but that's only one of the ways the symptoms can present themselves. The other way would be gangrene. And I, I get that those are wildly disparate you know, responses for something in your body. You know, you can either have convulsions and hallucinations or you can have gangrene, you know, like mm-hmm. pick. Um, and I would certainly grab the convulsions myself and skip the gangrene. But um, you have to be deficient in vitamin A to have the convulsions. And vitamin A comes from things like seafood. And Salem is a coastal town, a port city, and most of the victims the afflicted girls who had these symptoms are wealthy and they could have afforded to have good food and would have been eating food from the sea. They would not have been deficient in vitamin A. So because nobody ever gets reported as having gangrene, we can right away write off ergot poisoning. Um, I sometimes hear people, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like a, oh, you popped my bubble. Why'd you do that? (laughs) But we want there to be the magic pill, right? We want to say, oh, it was the one thing. And if we could go back in time in a time machine and like, in one day, fix everything and make it not happen. We'll just take away their grain because it's got fungus on it, right? Well, it wouldn't work. It's more complex than that, you know? And uh, you, have, you have a lot of people suffering from what was essentially post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, refugees coming from the middle of Maine, down the coast, back to New England, back to Salem, where they had come from years before, because they kept trying to settle uh, the coast of Maine. But up there, you had the Wabanaki um, and the Algonquin, and you had the French who were allied with them, and they were constantly kind of hammering back down to the south. And these refugees, like you, they'd go up and they'd settle and they'd live for a couple of years, and then they'd get raided and attacked, and they would flee back south, having lost everything they ever took with them. And it was horrible. It was, it was war. I mean, some of them watched their parents die, some of them lost children. Um, and so they come back to Salem and they tell their stories and, you know, they pass this trauma on to the people there. Everything outside their borders was darkness and evil and danger. And they were afraid. And, uh, of course we mentioned the lack of the charter. They didn't have a government at the time. It was very, very tricky. Um, the, the one of the things the government was doing is, I think it was with, when Governor Andros took over before Phipps, like they started to re retax property that had already been taxed. And so you had paid your tax and you had your profit left over and now you're going to get taxed again. So financially they were getting hammered. Um, they had an incompetent leader who didn't understand how to govern because he had never done it before. Governor Phipps. Um, all these all these pieces helped to kind of mix in the bowl and be this perfect storm that that in that window of time, that's that's when it could have happened. And it did. Well, well said. Well put. This also, <laughs> this this also reminds me of a work by the author Carol Carlson, "The Devil in the Shape of a Woman," uh, that I wanted to wanted to ask you about because in Carlson's examination, uh, what what uh, this author is looking at is more of a um, an emphasis on h- how certain women. Primarily, women were chosen uh, to be accused of witchcraft, and mm-hmm. Car- Carlson argues that there is a um, a violation of social hierarchy that occurs. Uh, in some cases, I think one of the specific quotes is that the accusers and the accused were, in a way, in a negotiation about the legitimacy of female discontent, resentment, and anger, because. It's not too far of an assumption to say this was probably a, a severely patriarchal society. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, one of the historians that we that we spoke to, we spoke to six, did great interviews with them. One of them is uh, Dr. Jane Kamensky. She's a professor of history at Harvard, which is a school I think some people have heard of. But she's also the director of the library there, um, Schlesinger Library, which is essentially a library devoted to women's studies through history. So. We wanted, we wanted a perspective, a historical perspective on, like, what sort of a voice did, did women have in that age? What was their place in society? What was seen as wrong? What was seen as good? You know, things like um, women in 1692 would have been able to read because they, they needed to read the scripture to their family, but they wouldn't necessarily have been able to write. Um, 
So, you know, years later when Reverend Green takes over, one of the, one of the afflicted girls, one of the girls who accused people and got them killed, wanted to join the church. And her confession is in that church's book that I talked about that's saved from the fire. But it's in, it's in the reverend's handwriting. And then she scrawls her, her signature underneath it because she couldn't write. She could read, but she couldn't write. And that was pretty common for women back then. It was, you know, partly out of this, you know, what, what was necessary for them, what wasn't necessary. There's a little bit of control in there too. If they can't read um, or if they can't write, then they can't, you know, get involved in government and things like that. And, and so there was a patriarchal, you know, push down on that as well. It is really bizarre what happens in the Salem Witch Trials because in effect you have, you have not only women, but you have young women, girls, 12, 13, 14 years old, who begin to guide the process of the court. Like their word is taken as law. And these judges, these educated men, a lot of them had gone to Harvard Divinity School. Like they were either just shy of being ministers themselves or, or could very well go out and get a job as a minister. They were, who were some of the most educated people of the day. Um, they were they were doing basically doing their bidding, you know, and so these roles are reversed. There's there's this the shift there, and you have to wonder, like you said, in a time when women are told to shut up and be quiet, sit down and do what you're told, that that they have this opportunity all of a sudden. They notice an opening, right? That that they're being listened to and things are being done based on their stories, and you have to think at least some of them sort of leaned into that. That I have freedom right now. And I'm going to use this freedom right now. And, you know, I, I haven't seen any study that looks at the list of victims who are accused by these people. But, you know, I wonder how many of them were were sort of like pro-traditional women, sort of women. Like, oh. you know, Rebecca Nurse was 76. And maybe she was one of those people to toe the line and say, look, I'm a good, quiet Christian woman. I'm not going to speak up. I, I, I have to wonder if there's a little bit of a social battle going on there. You know, we know that 20 years before the Salem Witch Trials, there was an event in um, Groton. Um, one of the ministers who pops up in the Witch Trials is this guy named um, Sam, Samuel Willard, I think. 20 years before, he was in Groton, and he had a household servant who was having fits and seizures and was speaking about the devil and the book. Like, it's all these elements that come right from the Salem Witch Trials, but it was 20 years before. Um, and and, and I, I, I see a lot of the servant speaking out and having a voice for, uh, you know, a few months. Uh, and and that's it, a pretty easy way to view these things. I don't know if I'm reading into it, if I'm a, applying my own perceptions onto it, but they're certainly speaking out. Hmm. You know, another person we interviewed, Mary Beth Norton, uh, who's an author as well as a professor, she she makes a great point about that consolidation of power that you're, you were talking about, Aaron, where yeah. the same men who are running the church are also the judge, jury, and executioner, essentially. Uh, so, yeah. all, like, all four points, essentially, are covered by the same old white men um, who are the best writers and readers and learned men of the time. Yeah. And it really does bring home that idea of these young women fighting back in any way they possibly could to to be seen and to be heard and to be known. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, I think the way she describes it is like, let's pretend today that the president and his cabinet, secretary of interior, secretary of state, all these, this very small window of people, they also all served as the Supreme Court and they served as the legislative branch. Oof. And, and that was the government. And <laughs> and that's what it was like in 1692. Um, I want to be careful with leading people to believe that the the afflicted girls were a social movement. Um, because the, there might've been part of that, but again, it's not, it's not a neat and clean black and white thing. Some of the afflicted girls were literally refugees from Maine who had come down having watched their entire families killed and were afraid for their life every single day. There was a lot of PTSD in there. There were some social things going on. Um, some of the better off families versus competitive families, you know, so it's this big mix but I think it would be wrong to say that there isn't some aspect of this rebellion against the the patriarchy going in there. It's not the only thing. It's not even the primary thing. But but there's an element of that in there for sure. Well, Aaron, we we're coming to the end here. Um, <laughs> what 
Well, by and which, by the way, unobscured season one about the Salem witch mm-hmm. trials is finishing. I believe when we're when this episode is available, the the last major episode will be out. So you can go and listen to all twelve episodes right now mm-hmm. of unobscured. Yeah. Um, there are there are going to be some other episodes that come out though, right? Yeah. So um, the season is twelve episodes long. Twelve episodes. You know the story from start to finish. Um, which, by the way, if like if you want to get away from the the political arguments in your household, <laughs> grab your iPhone and your headphones and just go find a dark room and sit and binge listen to Unobscured. It's a great way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and because uh, at least there's some hope at the end of the tunnel on that one. And uh, so when we get back into the new year, we're going to take those six interviews we did with the six historians, Dr. Emerson Baker, Dr. Richard Trask, uh, Dr. Jane Kaminsky, Mary Beth Norton, Marilyn K. Roach, and Stacey Schiff. Hey, I got them all. Um, <laughs> and we're going we're gonna to publish them weekly, one at a time, all six of the interviews polished up and put together nicely so that, you know, because... Wh- Unobscured is narrative storytelling. It's me telling a story for 45 minutes, and then every now and then you'll hear like Dr. Baker jump in and talk for 15 seconds to get a point across for me. But we never get all of his his interview. And it's it's a great interview. So this is our way of sharing those big conversations with people. And you can just sit in front of the fire hose and drink. And it's awesome. I concur. Sounds like a plan. So, so Aaron, before we leave, what yeah. is the one big lesson that you have <laughs> learned from making this show that we should in turn learn? Ah. <sighs> That's wait, well, yeah, that's right. Teach po- us the secrets of the universe, Aaron. Please hurry. Point of order, <laughs> Matt Frederick. Uh, I, we part of our exploration today was how it uh, was about how difficult and misleading it is. <laughs> I know to I'm encapsulate just, things. I'm trying. I'm trying to get magic, magic out of this thing. No, uh, I hear you. No, look. Um, I will say that I'm going to echo something I heard somebody say earlier. It's really, really um, important to remember that these were people. That we, we look back with 326 years of distance and say, crazy, like, they shouldn't have done that. I would totally do things different if I was in their shoes. And you know what? You probably wouldn't because of the way it was built, the structure, the social, the religious, the, the, the government, the, the, the wars and the weather and all of those pieces. I think we'd all do the same thing. And I think it's important for us in any historical situation, but especially the Salem Witch Trials, to look back at it and say, these are just people. They have hopes and they have dreams. They have fears. They have insecurities. They have talents. They have desires to be on stage. They have desires to slip and, and hide under the radar, whatever it is. Like these are just normal people like us. And if we forget that, that's when we start to misunderstand history. And, and that's, that's one of the biggest lessons that I can take away from this. Oh, man. That was so much more than I even expected. Okay. Thank you, Aaron. (laughs) (laughs) You're very welcome, sir. Yeah, sincerely. uh, Thank you so much. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today. Uh, As we said earlier, you can... Uh, you can, if need be, escape holiday time with your family uh, or just in the interest of enjoying a fascinating deep dive into a widely misunderstood period of American history, you can find Unobscured in its entirety now wherever you find your favorite shows. And uh, Aaron mentioned earlier uh, the website, which is chock full of some excellent additional resources, including for our uh, more visually driven audience members, maps and diagrams of the surrounding area to really put you in the place. Yeah, as well as books, if you want to continue your reading and learning. So, uh, once again, uh, that is Unobscured Season 1. Uh, we're not. I'm, I'm not going to try to finagle any... Uh, any juicy tidbits about season two <laughs> out just yet. Uh, so you'll have to take our word to stay tuned. Look forward. Let us know what you think about Unobscured. Let us know what you, uh, which historical lessons you feel can be drawn from this series of events in 1692. Again, Aaron, uh, any, any last words before we leave? Have fun with the, with the show. Dig in, listen, and enjoy. And learn something. And thanks for having me on, guys. Thank you so much for being with us. All right. Glad to do it. If you don't want to do any of those things, find us on social media where we're Conspiracy Stuff or Conspiracy Stuff Show. And if you don't want to do that, just send us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at howstuffworks.com. 
Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long for just $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.